What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. We're all familiar with the idea of mindfulness and leadership, and most of us would have some kind of preconceived idea about what each of these terms mean, at least to us. So what happens when the two constructs collide at the deepest level? And what does mindful leadership actually mean for the leader, the team, the organisation and the bottom line? Michael Bunting is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, researcher, facilitator and co-founder of the Awakened Mind app. As the co-founder of global consultancy The Mindful Leader, he's committed to changing lives through leadership, team and culture transformation. And it's very clear that Michael is a man who walks the talk. He's been meditating for 32 years and he just recently completed 126 hours of meditation in two weeks. That's nine hours a day for two weeks. In this conversation, we share Michael's personal story of financial challenges, divorce, the impacts of the GFC, and what amounted to a long, dark night of the soul, leaving him in tears every day for two years. Fast forward, and with his ever-developing curiosity, commitment, and compassion, Michael went on to support his two now adult children to thrive. He wrote four books, including one bestseller, remarried and had two more children. We traverse topics from change, pain, performance, growth and the power of course correcting even when it feels clunky. And we touch on how even the breath can sometimes be used to numb our struggles. Whether you're hoping to dial up more self-awareness or you're seeking to take full ownership of your suffering, and regardless of whether you're a leader of one or 1,000 people, then you will not want to miss this conversation with Michael because, as Michael says, there is power in stillness for all. Michael, welcome to Human Cogs. It's a funny way that we connected initially and then reconnected, and I think it's worth sharing it here, that I first moderated a a panel that you were on about six years ago in Melbourne, and I'm not sure that you even remembered it, (laughs) Um, not in great detail anyway. And fast forward six years later, we find ourselves sitting side by side on a plane from flying from Sydney to Melbourne. I say, hey, is it is it Michael? Uh, you say, yes. I say, it's Sabina Reid. You still look a bit sort of confused. And then the best flight I have ever experienced in my flying life, and I have I have clocked a lot of air miles, I would say was the 90 minutes that we had side by side on our Virgin flight from Sydney to Melbourne. That's an interesting introduction in itself. But um, I 
we'll go backwards and forwards a little bit, but that's that's how we reconnected and, and that was a, a meaningful exchange for me. After that time, I started following you on LinkedIn and I saw that you were posting all about mindful leadership, which is obviously your um, superpower and your area of expertise. And people respond beautifully to what you share, their thought-provoking questions, um, insights, suggestions, reflections. And then more recently, you posted this, and I would like to read it, and then we'll turn to you. Feeling broken, ready to give up on yourself. I've never shared this vulnerably before, but given that I teach authenticity, I believe in comebacks, transformation and growth. So here goes. The first year of my business in Australia, which was 2003, I burnt through my life savings, money from a successful business I'd built in South Africa. I got my first client at the end of that year, and in the nick of time, I was about to give up and kiss my life savings goodbye. It took me almost four years to get the original investment back. Then my wife had an affair. Divorce followed, and I lost 75% of my assets in the divorce. My two kids to a foreign country, because my ex is Brazilian, a GFC, and a broken heart. It was all too much. It was a long, dark night of the soul. I woke up and I cried nearly every day for two years. By 2009, I was technically bankrupt. Then my son announced he wanted to come back to live with me. I could not afford him. That brought me serious focus and thousands of hours of work, late nights, weekends, innovation, learning and more. My son came back to live with me and he flourished, ending up at Oxford University. My daughter also came back and is now completing a PhD in psychology and in brackets, proud dad. In 2012, I bought my first house, a really nice house, four minutes walk from the beach in Sydney, and I paid the mortgage off completely in two years. From 2009, I spent about 40 days a year in silent meditation. It became a central discipline to my life, alongside deep shadow work, looking at my dark side and my trauma history. Between 2014 and 2016, I wrote three books. One was a runaway bestseller. My fourth book came out late last year. My business continues to be a joy and a success. My second marriage is a source of great growth and love, 11 years now. Why am I writing this? If things are bad, if things are breaking you, hang in there. Not only can you change your life, you can change yourself. Most of our life challenges are self-created. Our own lack of self-worth mirrored back to us in the choices we make, in the things we say and do. I was no different. But that person can transform and grow and your life can rebirth into something beautiful. If it's a low point in your leadership, your marriage, your finances, hang in there. Yes, it can get dark, but things change. Just find a way to love yourself. Find a way to become more self-aware. Find a way to take full ownership for your part in the suffering. Quit the blame and victim stories. Own it. And find that inner stillness beyond the storm of pain and drama. And you will flourish and the pain and loss will become a defining part of the beauty of your life. May you be well. Welcome, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Sabina. I, I can't believe I shared it on LinkedIn. Wow. 
it was a reflection moment around one of my team wanted to wants to kind of take over or run my business he's the future of the business and I was just having a reflection of what it took to get the business to where it got to and then all that personal stuff and that's what prompted me to write that that you can come back from the darkest places yeah and what what do you mean by that what do you mean by coming back from the darkest place because as you've just acknowledged that's not typical LinkedIn fodder, is it? That's not the no. what what we often read about on LinkedIn, which yeah. is usually people sharing their successes and their wins and selling their work in many ways. Yeah, I think um, because we're in the transform, I'm in the transformational area. We're helping people transform. So whether that's organization transform and usually person transform, it means something has to die and be let go of and and then something has has to take its place you know it's like the phoenix goes to the ashes and i think i think we as a culture love the sexy part of like the new you know like i look at my new success we don't talk enough about the death process the dying process the 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 ashes process because there is whatever we have to if we're going to become a kinder person for example we have to um something's going to prompt us to want to be kinder. and for many of us it's a moment where you've alienated too many people and you're in so much pain because of the, the the script you've created. And then you recognize, oh my God, I, I want to become a kind of person. I don't think anyone really wakes up, generally speaking, doesn't wake up one day and go, I think I want to be a kind of person. It's usually as a result of the suffering that our existing patterns have created, that waking up. But the the death of that pattern, and usually it gets you, in, you're in the dark place. I mean, if you look at adult development theory, we tend to change under high pressure. When things are not working well, the system finally ends. Part of our professional jobs often get to, to get people to see that it's not working, right? Because they still think it's working to get them to see it's not working. But the moment of real seeing it's not working, whether it be my marriage, my life, my television, Netflix choices, whatever, is painful and there's loss involved. And often at those moments, we have no sense of hope. It's like, you know what I mean? The the person who's been, who's alienated all their best friends and, you know, and so forth. There's no, it's not easy to think like, if I'm kind for the next two years, I'll slowly be forgiven. I'll slowly rebuild. You know, usually what we get is the beautiful picture at the end of the two years. Look, if you're kind, this happens, but the process is painful and messy and uncertain. It is that. I, I would agree with you 100%. Of course, it's messy and it's uncertain. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that you have to reach a dark place or a hard place, a hard place yes. anyway, in order to want to rethink the trajectory you're on or the thinking you hold or the behaviour you practice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much of that view. I often use an analogy um, where... If you ask someone to let go of a pattern of behavior, oh, just, you know, stop that drinking or just, you know, stop the Netflix late at night or whatever it is, stop your being judgmental, whatever we tell a person. We seem to have this ability with investment in whatever we're doing at the moment, we invested in it. I think for us to let go of it, it's, it's impossible until we truly see the price of that pattern of behavior. So in other words, if I'm being judgmental and I begin to really notice that when I'm being judgmental, I'm fostering an anger, quality of hatred, and I start seeing the contraction in my system, the contraction body, I start seeing the thinking patterns I'm having have become narrower and meaner. I start noticing, God, I'm not as happy 
as I could be. Something shut down in me. When I, if I fully see that suffering, feel that suffering, and connect it with the pattern, it becomes possible, I think, to then go, I don't want that anymore. As opposed to, oh no, I'll, I'm going to work on being less judgmental when secretly I still think it gives me some feeling of superiority and better, whatever it is. I haven't fully appreciated the price of it. And appreciating the price of it tends to be the moment where we go, hold on a second. So you work, Michael, predominantly with leaders, leadership teams, organisations, and systemically you're working with with, with yeah. groups as well as individuals in, in leadership and, and mindful leadership. But a lot of what you've just said then is is quite deep therapeutic work and that shadow side has developed typically in our younger years as a protective mechanism and I'm curious how you work with leaders and people in their organisational capacity with that deeper work because they haven't signed up to you to lie on your Freudian couch. Well, they perhaps they have, but not knowingly. They haven't. <laughs> so these patterns that you talk about, these these parts of ourselves that don't serve us well, perhaps at some point did serve us well. That's why they've developed. So right. how, how do you help people build the bridge between typically the, the younger self when it did work well and now the older self that no longer needs it to stay safe. Yeah. I mean, Sabine, I just want to thank you for that and, and for your listeners to remember. Like, I think for this kind of awareness work, for, for, the, for the journey of personal transformation or organisational transformation, I think uh, like two things are so essential, compassion and curiosity, right? And I love how you've put that, like that behaviour didn't, Nothing tends to happen by accident. So if I'm, um, I'll talk about one of my own patterns. One of my own patterns is, uh, has traditionally been like to be the shiniest person in the room, right? The winner, 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 chicken dinner. And that pattern came as a result of a relatively emotionally absent childhood. Now, my good parents, but they just, neither of them were particularly emotionally available, nor were they often present. My dad particularly was working, you know, working long hours all the time. And, and so I noticed that for me to get the love, I was yearning for the connection. When I came home with the first prize in the sports thing, that's when I got, you know, so that pattern developed. Now that pattern doesn't work so great when you're leading a team, when they're supposed to be the shiny ones, not you. Uh, and so to say to that person, oh, like someone like me, oh, you need to empower people more. Um, and then suddenly I've got to reverse, you know, whatever it is, 20, 30 years, 30, 40 years of needing to be the shiniest person. As I start trying to help other people shine, all of that unconscious pain that I haven't dealt with is going to come up, me and every human being. And I think one of the, excuse me, I'm a, bit, a little bit compassionate about this, the corporate training and development arena has, you know, it's insane how shallow it can be where, oh, yeah, we'll teach you some empowerment skills and just, you know, take your little laminated card and <laughs> away you go as if it's going to work. And then it doesn't work. And it's like, oh, well... Let's tell ourselves it didn't work and it doesn't work. So whether we like it or not, that these patterns that you've spoken about, they get in the way of very ordinary behaviors every day to the simple, you know, one-on-one of leadership is empowering people properly. If if I have any kind of insecurity, um, I'm not going to do it well. And if I can't find a way to understand and deal with that insecurity in a structured way, it's going to keep hijacking me. And we've seen this over and over and over again. Another favorite one is conflict avoidance almost codependence in the workplace, which just the other day we were saying we had this really fascinating conversation with a group in Europe, one of our European clients, where where the, the big, big boss says, who 
who reports to an even bigger boss, um, says, I told my boss recently as a result of this program that I've, I've stopped talking so much and I'm starting to listen and ask deep searching curious questions to accelerate the pace of learning in my team. When I told my boss, you know, I've stopped just talking so much and listening, he nodded and said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what you should be doing. That's the right practice for you. And then she said, he's so kind and nice, but I got really angry because it's like he's been watching me do this for three years and he's never told me. Then we have one of her direct reports who's doing exactly the same thing to her. And we had to recalibrate. You're actually not being kind at all. Mm -hmm. There's nothing kind about not giving people tough direct feedback. Mm -hmm. And this person was like, yeah, I know, but it's, it's so hard. And you could just see that person's childhood playing through, you know, uh, where I needed to be the nice one, the good one, the compliant one in order to belong. Mm. And it was very successful to a point in getting me the leadership position because people liked me, they promoted me. But now I've got a lot of accountability issues and, you know, which I pretend are not happening because we're brilliant at denial. So one way or another, under the structure of ordinary leadership behaviors that make a difference to the performance of companies, these underlying shadows whether we like it or not, whether whether you're listening to this, you disagree with us or not, it's it's irrelevant. It's going to affect you. It's embedded in your system. And we have this saying in our work that, which is a very ordinary saying, that which you cannot name, you can never outgrow. Mm. In an organizational context, it's very classic. Because one of our clients, about a year and a half ago, this is a classic example. There's their new CEO. The CEO published a collection of new behaviors that for the business so he has our new culture and our new behaviors and, and and it was very clear that these behaviors were needed to accelerate the innovation and efficiency in this business because it was very bureaucratic and it was a lot of rah-rah around the you know i won't say what the collection was. there's a name they gave which is beautiful but it'll give away the company's name and so there was this very big excitement for about 12 months. And then I ended up speaking to multiple groups in this organization. And I said, and they say, collectively said, it's so wild. We, we know what these new behaviors are. We talk about them. They're in our performance measurement and the old behaviors just keep on going and nothing really changes. It's so frustrating. And so I asked them a simple question. I said, do you have a culture that can talk about the old behaviors, if you will, and 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 can people take ownership for them? Do people understand why they're there? If you address the risk causes, no, we don't ever talk about those. We just talk about the brand new, and it's like, well, no wonder you're not actually getting going anywhere. And so that's usually our entry point where we go, well, there must be a set of behaviors at the moment that are not serving you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking to us. Mm -hmm. Let's just name them. And we just, we usually name them, right? We go this long list and people are very glad to share because they all think it's not them, right? It's someone else. And they go, yeah, these people. And we get these shopping lists of what we call red zone behaviors. And then what we do is we then help them articulate the impact it has on their performance as a business, on their workplace engagement and well-being. That's another important part. And their ability to innovate and learn. And then it becomes really obvious to them. It's like, oh my gosh. And I'll give you a simple example. If we're a classic culture, we're nice and conflict avoidant. We say, okay, great. If we take those two things, we avoid conflict and we're nice with each other. We don't have the authentic discussions for fear of disruption. One pattern of behavior. You go, how does that affect performance? It's very quickly they realize, well, if we're not having tough conversations around performance issues, it's costing, yeah, how's that workplace engagement and trust? Mm. You know, well, we don't really know people are, we don't know where we really stand with our boss half the time. We don't really know where we stand. People say one thing, do another because they, and so forth and so forth. 
once that's named, then we ask them to name what great looks like, the healthy behaviors we call the green zone. It sets the platform for an organizational reason for looking at culture. Because usually what we find historically is when organizations look at culture, it's like a branding exercise usually. It's not a business thing. We make it a business thing. It's like, no, 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 no. This has to be a fundamental part of your strategy. And, and we are, even get them to start articulating the dollar value of the red zone behaviors and the dollar value. And then we articulate the ability to achieve their vision and strategy. Those red zone behaviors are just dragging them away. And yet they, they, they're kind of invisible because they, they're going on every day. Mm. They're not dramatic. They're just part of the furniture, but it's to get them to look at it. Once that happens, we'll ask them a classic question. I'll finish and let you ask a question. We'll say, well, well, how do you reduce red zone behavior, increase green zone? Like, how do you do that? Now, funnily enough, most of them usually get quite quiet at this point. It's like, do you do posters? Do you change the website? You know, do you have great talks? Do you change the performance system? What do you do? Um, and, and eventually we, we propose to them, look, there's three big things you need to do. Uh, there's multiple things, but there's three big things. One, you have to get your senior leaders to role model less red zone and more green. If you don't do that, you're basically dead in the water. But then that means those senior leaders need to be mature enough to own and know their own red zone. Because there aren't any denial around their own red zone behaviors, their shadow behaviors. No one's going to trust them. Mm-hmm. And if they can't demonstrate the ability to know, name, and transform with a degree of regular, not perfection, it's messy, from red to green, well, then God help the rest of the organization if they, it's not going to happen. So we have to do some quite deep work in the senior leadership to help them. But now we don't go to childhood stuff or anything. We just, we're just quite clinical about, I mean, it's very, you know, it's very safe. Yeah, it has to be very safe, psychologically safe. But mm. it's one of those red zone behaviors. We do get them to explore at some point. Why do you think they're there? Mm-hmm. What's your personal investment? And that's where it gets a little bit. But we use a very safe Harvard University mm. system for that. And that's where the conversations get life changing for people because not only does the business change, you know, as they say, one of our CEOs recently said, I've become a better father mm. because, of course, you have because you're now starting to understand the pain that you inflict on other people through your own unconscious patterns of behavior. And we go so far as to get the senior leaders to articulate the impact of their personal red zone behavior on the team and the organization, which is really tough for them, but really powerful. And we get them to articulate their green zone, their their aspirations in terms of their own values. You know, we will say, what do, what, what's the talk you want to walk as a leader, as a human being? And let's articulate that because how can you consciously cultivate anything that you cannot name? So that's hopefully that gives you some organizational context. We've a lot of technical research and so forth, but that's the, the ground. And they're sharing those red zone experiences, stories, naming it in the presence of others. This is not individual, but yeah. this is in the presence. Others are bearing witness to this to this correct story. correct yeah. mm. yes it's a process always most the person in the greatest power goes first always because mm. they set the tone and the safety mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i mean once and we, because it's so steeped in our work so steeped in evidence and research and systematic we always design our work for what we call the greatest cynic and most shut down person in the room it's like can we bring that person across the line. And if we can't, we need to go back and look at our content. And part of that is an intellectual conviction. Like it, there's nothing woo-woo about it. It's very, it's almost clinical. We've got global norms and research and, you know, it's very, it's based in hard, as, as much as social science, if you will, can be, it's based on hard data. 
and a, a clean, a clear-eyed look. So by the time the person's admitting their red zone behaviors to others in front of others, uh, there's a very compelling mm -hmm. basis to do that. But also what the funniest part is, and they all say this afterwards, they go, so I finally came clean and like I talked about my red zone behaviors and I owned them and shared them, I shared their impact. And for that leader, it's a massive moment, right, for them. And the, the team that they're telling them is almost like you're, yes, we've been watching you do this for the last five years. There's no news at all to them. All they have is tremendous relief. Uh, finally, you're seeing what we've been seeing. You're owning what we wanted you to be owning. This is the tremendous irony of the, of the shadow, right? So, Bina, you know this. It's like the things that we keep secret from ourselves are really only secret from us mm. because everyone else sees our shadow. They see it act out every day. The conflict avoidant person, uh, they think that no one sees that they're conflict avoidant. Literally. I remember, I remember I was talking to one wonderful, wonderful female client in Europe and we did a values exercise and we asked her, so what are your deepest values? Now, fascinatingly enough, right, Sabina, when we ask, we have this question, we ask leaders, do they need to walk the talk? Do leaders need to walk the talk? Everybody says yes. Great. So then we say, okay, describe the talk you try and walk each day. Now, only about 1% of leaders can answer that, which is shocking. Mm. And then we ask them, well, how does it inform your behavior the last week? <laughs> <laughs> then it's like silence. Hold on a second. You haven't clarified the inner talk. You haven't clarified your promise to your people as a human being, as a leader. You haven't clarified that. There's no accountability around that. And there's no directional, there's no orientation towards that in a conscious way. How, how do you really lead in a great way? Then it's kind of wild in a way. Anyway, so we did this exercise with this woman and she says one of her deepest values is integrity is a deep value for me and i really want to be that leader that leads in and from integrity at all times right boring word integrity so when you get up to her red zone behaviors her red zone one of her red zone behaviors is people pleasing she's nice she's really nice and i said i asked her i said hey are you aware that when you're people pleasing you're out of integrity you're actually out of integrity because you're not telling the truth you're thinking one thing saying another shock and horror you know what do you mean out of, not out of integrity, I'm a dishonest person. Okay, well, what do you call seeing a behavior that's going on that's hurting that person in the team and not addressing it? <laughs> Is that honesty? <laughs> no. And it's fascinating how the human mind exempts its shadow behaviors from the reality of what they really are. I know I'm not being honest, right? Because uh, I'm being nice. Only in self. We're, we're so quick to see it in others and point it out because we're going to, you know, give them the gift of a lifetime, we think, when we do. Exactly. And I think to your point, you know, I think each one of us survives our childhood by creating a story of who we are that's worthy and lovable. And I'm guessing for, for this woman, it was... I'm, I am a lovely, good person because I get a, I get affirmation from my parents. I'm sweet and nice, and and then suddenly there's this jarring, dis, um, but I'm being dishonest. It's like how does dishonesty sit with good person? They can't hold the paradox, so they go, I'm not dishonest because they can't hold the paradox that I am a good person and I'm dishonest sometimes. They can't hold that, so that's what we try and work with them. It's like no, that's a pattern of behavior that's not serving you and others, but it's not you. Because we tend to get very confused between our patterns of behavior and who we are. Mm. And of course, the ultimate of who we are is, am I worthy of connection? Yeah. And am I lovable, really? Am I lovable? And if I'm not, 
So I think people are very defensive because they're trying to protect that idea. Yeah. You talked then a lot about values. Well, for this woman, integrity was a, a, a road sign that she was trying to follow in the best way she knew how. How do you help people identify what their values are? Because so many people that I work with in organisations talk about a sense of values, but they find it very hard to articulate what their top values are. And if they can list them or find them on a menu and tick the box, they find it hard to make sense of how they actually honour and live by those values. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. And to be fair, Sabina, it's been one of the toughest questions and we've worked with it in so many ways over 20-something years. I think the first thing to answer is this. What we found is that most people, when they're asked to articulate their values, they co- they think of it as an affirmation of their worth. It's like, I am a kind person. My values are kindness. I am a, a person who works hard. Uh, hard works a value. They don't think of it as a growth arc. They don't think of it as the opportunity to to develop lost parts of myself. And when we're asking questions, that's what we're asking, right? So where have you lost? Where do you lose your way? Where do you become imbalanced? Where do you get fixated? And and what does how does that track back to values? And we use a very simple um, a system. I, I'll share a personal story in a second because people always love the vulnerable personal story. I'll, t- I'll talk well, about the cat's that. already out of the bag on that front. Yeah, so. yeah. But I'll talk about a really fascinating moment around honesty for me. But what we found this is a fascinating body of research from from the, these great leadership authors, uh, Zanger, Jack Zanger, and Joseph Folkman, Zanger and Folkman. And they, they, they set out on, on this research study where they wanted to know, is it better to be a tough, direct, driving, accountable leader, or is it better to be people, warm, connected, pe- brilliant with people, emotionally intelligent type leader? And they called it tough and nice, right? Just better be a tough leader or a nice leader. And um, it, in their research, they found much their shock and surprise that it actually turns out the best leaders are both tough and nice. But it turns out a very, very, very human beings are very good at tough and nice. And you can just... In other words, if you take it at a marriage, you're good at boundaries, but you're also incredibly loving, mm. right? Most people are quite good at boundaries. Like, this is my space and time. They can do it in a harsh way. Uh, whereas, or if they, they're warm and loving, they let go of boundaries. You know, it's really hard. So, so what we look at when we first ask leaders, we start with this orientation. Are you tough? Do you think you're over-indexing on tough or nice? Now, with the leaders that say, oh, I'm pretty balanced, we know they're typically delusional. <laughs> I don't think it's possible to get through your childhood without some fixations, you know, go mm-hmm. mate, like the, the myth of the perfect childhood yeah. doesn't exist. And so when, when we get to help them to see, am I too nice or too tough? Then we get to start them to explore the cost of the too tough and the too nice. Then we'll ask the values. So, okay. So if you're too nice, what kind of value if practiced, cultivated and nurtured in your, in your life and leadership would bring you into balance and tell us research tells us being a lot more effective leader or if you're overly tough and direct and sometimes cool you know what value now would would you cultivate and and you know ironically everyone values kindness and respect even the toughest leaders and everyone loves excellence and delivery getting shit done everybody loves that so you know a good leader delivers both so we start there so that they think of their values as a developmental opportunity not a branding what i often you know, the, the conflict avoidant leader saying, I value respect and compassion. And it's like, yes, no doubt you do, but it's not serving you. 
Because what you're not seeing is a lot of your so-called compassion and respect is actually fear and avoidance. Mm. It's quite toxic for you and others. And, and when you label it like, oh, fear, you know, compassion and respect, we're not minimizing that there are beautiful values. But because you're so lost in your avoidance, they're not going to serve you, they're not going to wake you up enough out of the patterns that are not serving you. So it's tricky because they say, but I don't, well, I do value, you know, integrity is a favorite one because everyone values integrity. And it's to help the people pleasing leaders see that when they're not doing accountability and they're not doing the direct conversations, they're not doing the harder parts of boundaries. They're not only not being in integrity with themselves and not being in integrity with others. And, and the reason they're not being in, in integrity is because they're not valuing their truth. Mm. They're not valuing their truth because they're not feeling worthy of it, right? And that then, why do they not avoid conflict? Because they need people to like them. So it's like the cycle of the, like, you're cycling in like a toxic pattern that you're not even aware of usually. I'm just a nice person. Mm -hmm. We think of values because of the mind, my mindfulness background, we tend to think of values as training the mind and heart principles, not my brand principles. And yeah, as well, share a funny little story. When I was, when I was, this is about 15 years ago when I was in the, I was in the US and I was studying the Enneagram, which is a personality typing system. And I was with Don Risa and Russ Hudson. And, uh, and, and, and Russ, uh, after a couple of years, eventually they realized that you, this is your personality type, right? And I, and I said, okay, I, I finally accepted this. This is really, really, it's not me. It's a pattern of behaviors I do that I've, I've done for my whole life. And that one of the big patterns of my life is to impress people. And, um, and Russ said to me, you do realize that as long as you're putting this impressive facade on, the best that you're ever going to get is people loving the facade. You are never, ever going to get the love and connection you seek, ever. Because there's you're not there. You're, you're putting this facade. And I was like, I had this moment of like shock and horror. It was like, you know, it's like, so you're saying that my life strategy to get love is, and, and approval is basically condemned because I can never get it because this, the strategy, yes, Michael, <laughs> I was like, okay, <clears throat> you know, I had nightmares and cold sweats that night. And then the next day I said, Russ, how, how do I get out of that pattern? Like, I don't want that. I want authentic connection in my life. Oh, that's easy, Michael. Like take off the mask completely. Speak your vulnerable truth always no matter what the cost. Now, of course, someone who believes they're not worthy, and that's why they need the mask in the first place. That's like a death sentence, which is exactly what it felt like. It was like, if I did that, if I do that, everyone will run a mile because they'll see the pathetic, empty, useless person. Because that was my secret beliefs, obviously, from childhood. Because, and I think, I think if I put that in simple terms, simple, simple psychological terms, I must be not quite worthwhile or worthy because my parents don't seem to notice me that much because they're busy. So they must, it's not their fault. It must be my fault. This is what kids all do, right? They always, you take sense of agency back. It must be because I am not enough or worthy. That's why, you know, when I, I say, I see it with my own young kids, like they'll do a cartwheel. My little daughter will run around. She'll look up and you're looking and my wife and I are very diligent in keeping each other accountable because we don't want to inflict that wound on our children where, she looks up and we're just staring at the TV or something. What's the message she gets? You're not enough. You're not interesting enough. You're not worthy enough. I got a lot of that when I was little. And so that created the pattern. And so the practice, you know, was basically honesty, but the vulnerable kind, not, not the 
being a South African heritage, it was not as difficult being direct with people. <laughs> it was much, much harder being vulnerable and open. That's another form of honesty. And it took me eight, about eight years to feel comfortable with the practice. It was a hell of a journey. Mm. It was a death. And that, interestingly enough, that story you read at the beginning, a part of that deep commitment to honesty, is, ironically, is what unraveled some of the secrets that were in my marriage. Because we did a cleaning the decks exercise. One of the teachers we work with said, look, you can't have true intimacy, true intimacy. The intimacy you long for, we all long for, if you're not in complete integrity with each other, because then some part of you is holding, hiding. I proposed this to my wife and she resisted the exercise, didn't want, had no interest in it, raised red flags for me. Six months later, finally, her secrets came out. The consequences of that. Yeah, it's kind of like the willingness to, to have some some things fall away in the, in the in the journey of coming back home. And I think that the journey of integrity is the journey back home. I think we all long to be at home in ourselves. And I think we give up that home for the love and approval of our parents when we're little. And then I think the adult life is in many ways is, is how do we get back home? And that home is integrity. That's how we get back home. And we seek home and all kinds of things, you know, <laughs> shopping. Affairs, whatever, approval. Where's your shadow now? It's a good question. It's probably a self-righteous, there's still a bit of a self-righteous self-awareness teacher. Um, <laughs> just ask my wife, you know. What would she, <laughs> she say? It, she would say that sometimes I can be a green zone bully. That's how she would describe it. A green zone bully. So in other words, when she's in when she's in red zone behavior, I'm not compassionate. I start educating and demanding. I start, you know, she becomes a student in my one of my a coaching client. And there's a harshness to it. It's like your behavior, and I'll say things like, You you gotta own your shit now, come on. And then I'll say things like, My clients can get this, why can't you? You know, <laughs> I'll say I'm making it sound more dramatic than I do it, but it's it's got that tone to it. And it's it's a kind of, uh, if I can just get you to comply with my wishes, then uh, this place will be happier. And there's a certain blindness in me. And I actually had a, a lovely moment. I just did a two-week silent meditation retreat. And I noticed, you know, remember one of the basic trainings that the mind fo fixates on the negative. That's what it does. And I noticed that I started to think in the retreat, yeah, she needs to own her shit more. <laughs> mm. Michael, why? It's like, no, because then I'll get home with an edge in myself and she'll say that two-week retreat didn't work too well for you, did, did it, <laughs> in our relationship. And so what I did instead is I, I, I kept on recounting all the beautiful things about her and then, and then I kept on doing this little prayer. I'm not a religious person, but like a kind of, Wishing, I wish you well today, sweetheart. I wish you happiness today. And then remembering all the things I appreciate uh, to overcome that tendency to, to, towards being critical and, and judgmental. That's probably my biggest shadow is being, being judgmental. Oh, my God, how can't that, look how unconscious that person is. And I imagine that plays out most loudly in your primary relationship, so marriage, maybe parenting, and all these clients who are grasping your wisdom and flying through, you know, the past the podium to collect their Mindful Leader Awards because of everything that you've taught them and showed them, but in your own backyard, 
you don't get that response. I should also say that there's another shadow. While we a shadow, one of my biggest shadows in marriage has been neediness, a kind of unhealed little boy who wants his wife. And again, if you haven't done awareness work, this is going to sound ridiculous and dramatic because I've had this feedback before. But if you do the awareness work, I'm describing what would most people will experience as like a background ir irritable noise. And the more aware you get, you really you see it and you go, oh my God. And so then when I describe it, it sounds dramatic because it's it is dramatic. But for most that sounds even look there's here the arrogance you got for most people that are aware. Oh my God. Um but there's a kind of um there's a kind of neediness that I have from my childhood that it plays in and my you know if my wife doesn't give me a warm enough hug or she's not you know connected enough there's a wound that you know I'll, I'll sulk a bit and I'll wait for but then I won't express my needs sometimes like hey I need a hug I won't do that because that's needy and pathetic so I won't do that <laughs> but meanwhile I'm waiting for the hug so now I've done a lot of work on that and particularly the last two years um but it's definitely a pattern that I need to the shadow pattern I need to to watch. It's the desire to be. It's it's the kind of contract that my wife needs to make me feel like I'm enough. You know, that's her job description. She didn't ever sign up for that <laughs> job description, or does she ever know it? But there's some part of me on bad days, you know, that's demands that of her, and 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 of course it repels her away. It's it's not exactly attractive for your husband to be a needy boy which so many w women have shared with me, their husbands do. And then the tragedy of not being aware of it and then playing it out. Because of course, as I'm playing out the needy boy, she her description, she starts feeling suffocated. And then she pushes me away, of course, which, <laughs> which then makes you more needy. And it's not dramatic. It's just very subtle. It's very, very subtle. It might be like, uh, she's just slightly, you know, it's good morning, sweetheart, but there's no hug. It can be subtle when she's, she's keeping distance. And my, my sulk can be subtle, but it's there. And you talk about it? How do you dialogue about it? Yeah, we talk about it. We talk about it now. And, and, and we, we, have a, we don't use a, the business language I use, but we, just, we definitely talk about our red zone patterns. Because every human being has got these coping patterns that fundamentally don't get you what you want, yet they're good in the short term. So when I'm sulking, uh, you know, like there's a part of me goes, I'll give you an example. Again, it sounds dramatic, but it's not. It's just so ordinary every day. This it's like um, she won't hug me. I go, okay, oh, I'm not going to be affectionate. You so you just take my affection for granted. I'm not going to be affectionate. It's this little decision, you know. And then for the next, and it feels good. I'm I'm going to teach you a lesson. It's a little game, you know, that you play. And uh, it doesn't. It feels good in the moment. But it just doesn't serve. So in that particular instance, the practice for me has been has been authentically sharing my needs. With my wife that's been the practice i'm doing and she would say if you're playing the game and you haven't shared your needs i'm not i'm not tell me out you just go and do your game then mm -hmm. yeah i won't tolerate any blame or anything so quite good that way she's quite fierce <laughs> own your shit, michael <laughs> um and so it's quite surprisingly hard as a male. I find it particularly as a male but you've never been anything else if you don't i've never something. been yes and in a sense though like we there's an archetype we're working against as men you know like for me to say to my wife i'm feeling like i need your love and i need some connection and i need i'm feeling a bit you know i don't know insecure for example um that's really really hard i know it's hard for females too but it just seems maybe i'm 
projecting here, but I do, it feels really hard to say that. So to, it's counter, so countercultural, and yet it so takes strength to do it in a conscious way. So I can, where I can share with my wife, hey, I'm feeling insecure and I need a hug, but I'm not, I'm not now playing the game to try and get the hug. I'm, I'm being honest about it. There's an honesty about it. And then willing to accept if she's not ready for a hug, that's, that's her business. Are you ready to accept that? Because that's the fear that usually stops us from asking for our needs to be met. Exactly. And uh, yes, I like when I want to say, are you? The best way of saying it is I'm aware that that's where the growth lies for me. Mm. It's if she says, well, I'm not ready. And then I start feeling that burn, the shame, the, the whatever it is. Yeah. Can I feel that? Can I sit with that? Can I be with that? And there's success and failure in that because then there's a progressively step because that's where the, the that burning is the wound that's causing the problem in the first place. Yeah. And if I can sit with that, feel that, accept that, then the wound itself heals. You've also been meditating. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing because what you've just shared then is, I think, deeply vulnerable, especially that we're talking about, well, your area of work and you describe so articulately the work that you do with leaders and organisations but you've continued to be able to come back to share your wounds, your shadow self, and how it plays out for you in the privacy Sabina, it, of your own it's not, it's not only so liberating. Like, this is the other thing I, should, I want to share. It's like my joy, just life just gets better. It's so beautiful. And, and I mean, I've just this last year, a lot of what I'm talking about with you now, this piece, I've done so much amazing healing work. And it's just... And now I'm watching, sometimes when my wife's cool, I'm watching myself and I'm just not affected. I'm just so okay. And I'm like, oh my God, this is, and that gift, that's the gift of the work, this stability. Mm -hmm. and, so, and I can stay open-hearted even when she's not open-hearted. Wow. And watch that in myself. But what it also gives me is such compassion for my clients. Mm -hmm. Like I'm in there with them. Yeah. I'm not the one. I'm, 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 I've climbed the mountain for most of them a little bit more, but I'm still on the mountain with them. Yeah. And I love that. I love that there's a deep sense of connection and, and camaraderie with my clients. And they they would I think they would say the same. They they don't feel judged. Mm. It's no judgment. We're we're all in this together. You're all trying to have less red zone and more green zone. Yeah. All of us. yeah. And we revert. It's not one way traffic, is it? That's the other thing. You know, people sometimes get shocked. It's like you've done in my case i've done 32 years i think of mindful so and you still got these patterns it's like i'm a joke i say you should have seen me 32 years ago <laughs> <laughs> what do you think so th a practice of 32 years of, of um meditating yeah yeah, yeah. now lots lots of meditating depth psychological work trauma work shadow work organizational leadership work lots of different things you know enneagram work nonviolent communication etc 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 yeah, so 32 years of deep diving and exploring, and I know from the conversation we had on the aeroplane that it has traversed many different areas. Yeah. And I'm sure you take the bits that work for you and leave the bits that don't. So you, you're curating your own toolkit of 32 years of not just mindfulness but um, yeah. deep personal work. Yes, and I and I think that's one of the hardest things for people who are new in awareness work is that some, some part of you has to let go of a bit of your own uh your own protections and ideas and and that's, that's why it's dangerous because you can you can get there's a lot of teachers out there that really don't know what they're doing that well or are not quite ethical and you hear story after story after story of you know just poor 
poor quality teaching or and or abuse. I've had my few encounters along the way as well. Um, and I think that's why I love, I love what you said. Like you have to, it's so tricky because you've got to let go of patterns that keep you secure, but you've also got to be your own best teacher and you're, you've got to listen to the red flags and alarm bells in yourself because it's almost like this is your, each one of us this is your journey to take. Yeah. You can use great teachers along the way, but it's your journey. Yeah. Don't, don't give away. I think that's really key, Michael, that so often we think maybe if I see this expert or this knowledgeable wise elder or this yeah. person who's been on their journey and found the light in their own life. And when we do that, we abdicate something of ourselves and our own knowing and our own wisdom because we think maybe someone else knows better than we do. And it's so hard to strike that balance between honouring new wisdom, new ways of thinking and learning from other wise people and knowing what you need for yourself. Exactly. I think the best advice I've ever been given on that whole journey is just look at the ethics of the person that's doing the work with you. That, that's the, as a rough guide, it's like, just look at, look at how ethical are they? Mm, that's sometimes not easy to decipher. Not easy to decipher, no. But for some of them, they, there's a little bit, there's a, little bit there's, there's a few pieces and they've got good justification stories. That's a rationalization. And that, and for those, I'd say just run a mile. Because every single time when I've looked back at a teacher or a win and I've gone, ah, there were little red flags that I, I didn't want to see because I wanted to get the, you know, I was still in some complex you've talked about. This is the person that's going to help me finally remove all my suffering and give you the answers. And like, there's like three things that they're doing that and I'm not so sure about, but I'm just going to ignore those. Do not ignore those. Mm. That's my mm -hmm. only counsel to anyone. Because mm -hmm. often teachers, they've got a lot of wisdom, but they're acting out their own shadows on people. Well, I mean, always I think we are exploring our own learning and self in the work that often in the work we do. That's often why we pick the work we do, why yes. we picked the partner that we do. Uh, we are working through. So we're all doing that. We're all doing that. So maybe another red flag would be, <laughs> That they pretend that their journey's finished. Yeah, I think that's that's far bigger than any ethical, you know. Hurdle. That's another big one. Oh yeah, I used to I used to have insecurities, but now <laughs> no, I'm perfect. Was that that funny saying? What I used to be arrogant, but uh, but now I'm perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rid of the arrogance. <laughs> um, you're also yeah. talking about a lot about self awareness, but what of self regulation? Like, where does yeah. that fit into the story? So self awareness probably my favorite subject of all. Um, I've got this funny way of sharing it where I go, I ask people, what is it? You know, what is self-awareness? And, uh, and then you get multiple. It's amazing the different number of different answers, right? It can't be all those things. There has to be some definition of it. So then I, I have another exercise where I'll say, okay, uh, I'll, when I do keynote talks, I'll say to everyone in the room, I'll say, okay, I'm going to put my timer on for 30 seconds. I'd like you to practice self-awareness, please. And then I put my timer on and 30 seconds and everybody sits there, 30 seconds, clue, mostly clueless, like, huh? And if you're listening to this right now, I'll see if you could do that, right? You know, press pause, do 30 seconds, and practice self-awareness and then play back and what I'm going to answer now. So <laughs> most people do not practice self-awareness. They think about the past and the future. And they, they usually think of what we call their action figure. They've got the story of me when I was in the past and the future and my, he's got some strengths and he's got some weaknesses and, and so forth and so forth. None of that's self-awareness. That's a kind of reflective storytelling, if you will, in our definitionally. So when we use the word self-awareness, we say there's two words, self and awareness. What is awareness? An awareness, by definition, is present moment, seeing, 
now. So I'll sometimes use my phone and I'll say, can you be aware of this phone? For those of you listening to this, I've got my phone in the camera. Can you be aware of this phone? Everybody says yes. And then I put the phone off the screen and say, are you aware of the phone now? And usually about 50% of people say, yeah, I'm still aware of it because I know it's not a concept. Now you're in memory, imagination, and reflection. You're not awareing anymore. Now you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So the first part of self-awareness, the awareness word is I'm accurately seeing as accurate as a human being can. I'm accurately witnessing what's happening now. I'm awareing it. So if I'm self-awareing as a verb, I'm witnessing what's happening. And then we ask, well, what's self? And we we not think of self as like a nice little story concept. It's what can I witness with this awareness? And I can witness the body, I can witness the emotions, and I can w- witness the narratives and assumptions in the mind. So if I'm self-awareing, I'm watching, as in, if you will, like almost listening to, watching, seeing, using the senses, physically, mentally, emotionally, I'm, I'm in real time, I'm, 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 I'm tracking it. Now, that's all mindfulness. Mm. So the irony is to be self-aware is to be self-mindful. There's no difference. Mindfulness is present moment awareness tracking. And um, and that's where the regulation comes in because, and this key with the principle of suffering, is that I'll say to people, what does your body feel like when you've been in an honest conversation versus a dishonest conversation? What does your body feel like when your intention is to get back at someone versus generously support them with useful feedback? The body never lies. Mm. The mind always telling the mind lies all the time. So if you can't track honestly what's happening in your body, chances are you're not going to regulate too well. You're not even going to know the difference between feedback from an angry intention versus a generous intention because you have no way of telling. I think a lot of people actually have got the self-awareness to feel that and then don't know what to do with it. It's too painful. It's too uncomfortable. I felt something there. I didn't like what I felt. I don't yeah. like what it might represent and push it back down or n- numb it, distract it, you know, drink it, yes. Instagram yes. it, whatever. That's right. And that's the that's the other fascinating thing that there's uh, Alice and Nagnostarkis, who's amazing. If anyone's listening to this, you should look her up and Alice Anagna Starkis on LinkedIn. She's awesome. Um, she's an adult development expert, maybe someone for one of your podcasts. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she did PhD research in adult development. And in a nutshell, this is a simplistic way of saying it, she discovered the difference between people who grow and mature rapidly versus not is their relationship with their feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the relationship? It's about being curious with and be able to stay with difficult feelings, to know them and to know what they're telling us as opposed to numbing and running away from them. Because the way we numb and run away from difficult things is always an immature response, pretty much. It's always an old childhood, you know, mechanism. So you don't grow. So the ability to to aware, self-aware, and then and then through repeated self-awareing to start learning to tolerate discomfort so I would, uh, my language I give it is, can you stay awake in the discomfort? Because usually what happens is when the discomfort comes, we go back, it's, it's like we go to sleep, we do something to make it go away, which is kind of like a dulling numbing, right? We go for an addiction or a something. But can you stay conscious and awake and values-based? That's where values become so useful. So, you know, if you take our clients, it's like if my values are integrity, well, can you stay in integrity even when it's burning inside? even when your mind is screaming at you that you're going to lose your job if you stay integrity or this person's going to laugh at you or shame you or mock you, can you still stay honest? 
it's like that's where there's amazing growth uh, available if you can tolerate distress tolerance we call it in our work the distress intolerance can you tolerate and then of course you know you know this very well sabina you learn over time that these feelings that so are so monstrous from a distance are not so bad from close mm -hmm. and uh and, and usually are very fluid they ebb and flow don't they they never stay at the intensity with which we fear they never do and we have these weird one client I was working with who was sad and I said, what would happen if you felt your sadness? Her words were, I'll get lost in it forever. And I remember she was kind of a good friend at that point. I remember chuckling with her and going, so you believe feelings can stay forever? Like, where did you ever get that belief from? Do you think that's true? And it's like, you've based half your life decisions on that, but it's a complete falsity. But you've never given yourself the opportunity to investigate it if it's true or not. And that's the beauty of, I think, mindfulness work is an invitation to become a student of yourself. Mm. not to rely on all of these other is to give you the tools and the awareness to begin to study not book study really study your own reactivity and really get honest like when i know when i'm describing my neediness there's a felt sensation in the body that's a familiar echo there's like belief systems like some of those feelings are so intense right to sit and feel them as opposed to sulk and shut down and manipulate my wife it's hard but when I do feel them, it's not that big a deal always. It's so weird. When people talk about mindfulness, you know, I can remember back at uni when they were, when we had put the raisin in the mouth and, you know, put the, they called it a raisin, so American, we would call it a sultana in Australia. Um, let, you know, the, the wrinkles in the sultana, the taste, the texture, all of that. And that was our grand lesson 30 years ago in, in mindfulness. Um, yeah. And yet you're talking about it at a much deeper level. I Do you think mindfulness might need a... PR reboot. Oh my God. Yes. Um, I don't know. Just don't even get me started. I'm going to try and make this really brief. Mindfulness, um, I think, you know, with John Kabat-Zinn's work, who I have tremendous respect and admiration for his beautiful work and his level of wisdom is extraordinary. Um, but I think he, he, like he, he, like we were when we started teaching a long, long time ago, you're working against a very impatient, very cynical, very, you know, the population you're introducing it to generally is what's this next piece of BS. And so, and then what's, what's my gain in it, right? And I think that the gain around you can get immediate calm and you can immediately feel good if you practice mindfulness kind of became the primary promise of mindfulness, mental health and wellness. And I can understand that. And I know for me and being a serious, like deeply committed practitioner for so long, I know that that's just not how it is. It's just not how it is. And so we've, we, we, we just walked, we eventually just walked away from the health and wellbeing stuff because the forum wouldn't give us the ability to talk about the process of feeling pain, the process of the burn, the process of growth. Mm. That's where leadership and leadership development far more lends it to itself. But I think it's, I do think we, we, we use the term developmental mindfulness. That's how we use it developmental mindfulness as opposed to normal mindfulness. Are they the same? Yes. But then when technique, they're different too. So the classic technique that most people are not, the classic technique is that if you're stressed, go to your breath, feel your breath, calm the mind, center the mind, and the mind will settle. And with that settledness will come good things in your brain or well-being. Whereas the technique we tend to teach is just pure technique is, okay, so if you're feeling stressed, do calm the mind first, zero the 
focus so the mind's stable but once the mind's stable start keep going back to it now investigate the fear and anxiety you can really feel it mm. look at it track it understand it and that's far more integrative psychologically but way more difficult because mm -hmm. because un unwittingly what we saw over time people use the breath just like they use netflix they literally are meditating while repressing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uncomfortable feelings the way we practice is no let's feel the uncomfortable it is, that becomes the breath is not as soon as another experience becomes dominant like anxiety or blood of butterflies or tension that becomes the thing you meditate with not the breath if you go if you stick with the breath and ignore that that's repression that's the opposite and it's it's in that that the learning really accelerates and it's and it's where mindfulness becomes technically uh precise massive body of work with, with a whole world opening it's like the shadow gets embraced distress tolerance gets developed an understanding of the fluidity and emptiness of things a deep appreciation of change and instability because one of our great sufferings as human beings is trying to make things stable when they're not to try and fix guaranteed relationships when they can't be uh you know mindful's practice called the, the 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 trying to make permanent what can never be permanent trying to make reliable what can never be reliable instead of really accepting and working with wisdom that this is how things are mm. but if you're practice if you're tracking experience you get to see vividly that experience is completely different all the time and not only that you also get to see self mm. this mythical action figure called michael um you get to see the bs you tell the bs you tell yourself oh my god the endless lies you know and justifications and stuff we tell ourselves and laugh about it. I'm, I'm laughing because you're laughing. We're both laughing. It, it, it happens. It's, it's even happened on this. It's happened in this conversation for both of us. It has, hasn't say it? More, say more. Say more. <laughs> well, I, I've noticed things that I've said and that you've said where we've started to say something which is about protecting self or um, keeping self safe or yes. proving self or. Yes. Um, with, I don't know if it's I'm doing it with me or I'm doing it with you or you're doing it with you or you're doing it with me. <laughs> There's only two of us here, but we're also aware that there are other people going to be listening. Yes. It's it's with us all the time. It, it is. It's, it's, we're constantly trying to protect something that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, or that doesn't need protecting. Doesn't need protecting. And, yeah, and, again, compassionate, right, because it did need protecting when we were yes. little. Yes. It did need a story. It did need a sense way to make sense of the craziness you know sometimes you, if you've got like a any parent who loses their temper for example and you're a little child right how the hell do you make sense of that mm. and protect yourself because it's terrifying it's up even if they're just raising their voice shouting and they maybe labeling you with a little label which all parents not all but 99 parents at some point do to their kids how does a child cope with that emotionally they start telling themselves stories about who they are and how the world works and and then those stories stay and they're about i'm not i'm not that terrible i'm I'm not as bad as my mom says or i'm not whatever it is right mm. and um i love the expression you have to become somebody before you become nobody yeah i've heard that i love that too and i just to explain to people what, what i understand that is you have to become quite an integrated healed remember there's no end game but like a relatively well healed self-aware person um and a, an ethical person because there's something quite significant about ethics for the mind the mind is the person who has an ethics practice has a settled congruent mind 
person who doesn't have an ethical practice is tr primarily being driven by fear, fear, feed and by fear and greed, and that creates a very unsettled mind. So once the mind is settled and stable and congruent in general, then you can start doing the more refined work, the really advanced work, uh, where you begin to see that your whole ego story mm. is really a concoction. But for someone who's just struggling, you know, to just be honest and be not, and have a have a relatively stable relationship. That's ridiculous to go. Let's look at the emptiness of self. No, it's like just put some practices in place to create stability, predictability, and warmth and protected and goodness in your life. Yeah. For most people, that's enough. Yeah, and we've got to meet people where where they are, where we are. Um, I yeah. feel like we are at the end of time. It was better when we had ninety minutes in the air, and then we had um, the drive in Melbourne as well. As it turned out, that's as, right. Yeah, you as a bonus, I drove you into the city. Yeah. So, in the in the interest of time, because we're not flying and we're not driving right now, we. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for your time, Michael, because. I just love the way that you're sharing yourself and how integrated it is with the work that you do. And we've talked a lot about integrity and that's that's what I see and that's what I feel with the work that you're doing. And I, and I want more people to know about the work that you do. And as you know, I work with a lot of organisations and I just know what a gift, what a gift your, your work is and what you are, what a gift you are, specifically you are. So I'm grateful. But we do end, we always end these conversations with the same question and I'll be fascinated to hear your answer to this one. This is the, the human cogs question. Who do you think is doing human well? Who do I think is doing human well? Oof, that's a good big question. Um, someone that everybody knows, right? Not, not me personally. No, no, anyone, anyone. Oh. Can be famous, not famous. But, you know, who, who in this world we've talked about and these conversations on human cogs often are, you know, complex and meaningful, deep exchanges. So I'm, I'm curious, who, who is doing human well? I often think I, my mind's, firstly, my mind is telling me you've got to find someone exceptional, Michael. And then I'm, and then I'm looking at this is my myself awareness practice. I'm going, but is that necessary? And then, and then I'm like, okay, what comes to mind is it more gen a generic general answer? My heroes that I think are doing human well are, are the ones that are not necessarily the great heroes. They're the ones who found a way to own some part of their red zone behavior and to just humbly work on it, right? Just to humbly work. And you might, it's not like a benchmark. Oh my God, that person is more evolved. It's not that. It's like that person is just actually humbly taking some ownership for the patterns in their life, the patterns in their leadership, and they're actually working on it. They're actually, you know, there's this beautiful moment with a client of mine last week where she, her practice to listen more and not speak over people. And she, she's, she was laughing in front of her team when she said, I caught myself, she's like, guess I'm catching myself, right? I'm, oh, I'm speaking over you again. And she goes, oh my God, I'm failing again. And I said to her, no, you're succeeding. That's the success. You, you're catching yourself in the pattern. You're owning it. You're course correcting. You're apologizing. Wow, that's impressive. And she was looked at me strangely like, what? And she wrote me an email today saying, I'm so glad that you said that to me because I'm now able to be a bit more compassionate with myself. It is success. And that to me, and I had written about these people in all my books, these are my heroes. It's not the, sometimes, you know, there's, for people might know the tennis analogy would be like you know, Novak Djokovic, 
uh, Rafael Nadal and, and, and Federer. And, and Federer and Nadal are by a million times more popular than, than Djokovic. But when I look at Djokovic and I see his awkwardness and his desperation to try and get people approval by being, I look at him and I just connect more with that. I'm like, I connect more with a guy who's busting his butt to try and be popular <laughs> versus the ones who are just so, I mean, I love Federer and Nadal too, but, but it's something about the person who's doing the work to be human, who's clunky, mm. who's struggling. Because I think I see myself in that person. Yes. Right? I know it's hard and just one little success, that's that's the work and that's worthiness and that's hum- that's doing human well in me, in my view. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. It's a beautiful, beautiful response. And to all the clunkies out there, may we yeah. r- unite in our clunkiness. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sabine. It was lovely. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.